John's Gospel, chapter number 12, and start reading in verse 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. This is the farewell sermon of the Lord Jesus Christ. As in the Gospel of John here, this is his last sermon publicly. Throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, he is with his disciples in a more limited sense up until the, the crucifixion. So this was his last sermon uh, to the multitudes. And we're going to examine this tonight and we'll start off with some, with some theology. And I'm sure it's going to be rough for Wednesday night, I know, but I trust it'll be worth it. So we're going to start on the deep end of the pool um, because there's some important truths that you find in here that as Christians, we, we must know, we must uh, confess these things, and it's good for us to know these things. And then after we go from there, we're going to look at Jesus' call for sinners to believe upon him. And it's going to go from, from some very deep truths to the very simple truth of salvation in Christ Jesus alone. But at the last, Lord willing, we're going to try to tie both of those things together and see why the first part is necessary for the second part. And the more you, you believe and confess about the first part, the, the truth about who God is and who Christ is, the more blessed is that gospel that we believe in. And the, and the benefits of knowing these truths uh, bless our souls, draw us closer to Christ, give us assurance, and and lift our hearts up in worship to our great God. So that, Lord willing, that's what we're going to do this evening. So the first thing we're going to look at is those the theological truths um, in verses 44 and 45. We'll see that we are to believe in Jesus, but that belief is in one who... So Jesus and the Father are one. Let me put it that way. Um, let's try to simplify here. That the Jesus and the Father are the one. And if you if you scan down through there, you'll see that Jesus says he'll say one thing and then say, but not the other. So uh, he says, "He that believeth on me believeth not on him on me, but him that sent me." And then um, verse forty-seven: If any man hear my words and believe not. Verse 48, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words. Verse 49, for I have not spoken of myself. 
And so you see that word not there throughout this with um, Jesus bringing more clarification to, to what he's calling for. And so by stating the truth and saying the not, that negative side of it, um, we're clarifying what, what he's talking about here. So this first section is that Jesus and the Father are one. And that's what verses 44 and 45 are getting at. Jesus cried aloud and said, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. Now Jesus is the object of our faith. When Jesus says that we're not believing in him, you know, look at verse 46. He says, I am come alive into the world that whosoever believeth on me. So Jesus is not saying that, that he is not the object of our faith. I mean, he can't be saying that because of verse 46. So what does that mean? He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but him that sent me. What Jesus is saying here is that you're not believing merely upon him as, as merely a man, but that he and the Father are one. That to believe upon Jesus is not only to believe upon a man, but you are believing in the second person of the Trinity. Because Jesus and the Father are one. So you cannot believe in Jesus and not believe in the Father, and you cannot believe in the Father and not believe in Jesus. So the Jews said they believed in God but rejected Jesus, and Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. Because I am the only way to the Father. You, you can't reject me and then come to the Father. That's impossible. And likewise, you can't come to Jesus as the King of the Jews without knowing that he is uh, the Messiah, the Christ. So Jesus and the Father are one. So there, if you remember in the triumphant entry, many people believed upon him, is what it said. They believed on him. But what were they believing? They were believing, well, here comes our king, who's going to deliver us from Rome. But it, but it is more than that. So he's clarifying what he means by believing upon him, that he and the Father are one. He is declaring that he is the God-man, that Jesus and the Father are one. See, the Father sent the Son. He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. So here we have the Son being sent forth from the Father. Now, there's, I'm going to give you two terms. And if you don't remember them, at least remember the concepts. Um, talking about the Trinity. There, there's something that theologians call the ontological Trinity and then the economic Trinity. And just to be basic about it, ontology is the study of being. So the ontological trinity is when you talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit without considering creation and redemption. Because the trinity existed before there was anything, before there was a heaven, before there was stars, before there was a universe, before there was an earth, before there was man, there was God. And God needed nothing else. And in eternity past, there was the Holy Trinity. And so, when, you, when we speak about God, without reference to redemption, without reference to creation, 
without reference to man. We're talking about the being of God. So that is, that is our, our God, God in three persons. The being of God in three distinct persons. The, the Son, truly God, the Father, truly God, and the Spirit, truly God. So we don't use terms of quantity, like we don't say that he's 100% God, um, because um, God is Spirit, he is eternal. So we say truly that, that the Son is truly God. That in, in the being of God, the Son is truly God. He's not lesser God. He's not less equal than the Father. But He is truly God. The Son is equal to the Father in power. The Son is equal to the Father in glory. He is equal to the Father in being. The Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son in power, in glory, in being. So in one sense, you might think that, that each are the same in being, but distinguished from all eternity. And so, as the Westminster Catechism says, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be the begotten of the Father and the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Now, this is when we get into the other aspect, of it, what we call the, the economic trinity. And this is when we start thinking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in terms of their dealings with man and in creation and redemption. And so um, let, me, let me read to you from what R.C. Sproul said here. He, he wrote it pretty good. He said, With regard to this, to the economic trinity, we distinguish among the three persons of the Godhead in terms of their roles in creation and redemption. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. It is the Son who acquires redemption for us. It is the Spirit who applies redemption to us. So we don't have three gods. We have one God in three persons, three persons distinguished in the economy of redemption in terms of what they do. So that's why it's called the economic um, trinity. It's in the economy of redemption. It's what they do for us in redemption that, um, that we see here spelled out in Scripture. So from all eternity within the trinity, the being of God, we find the Father begetting the Son and the Son being begotten of the Father through, from all eternity. And so there is not a time ever in existence when the Father was not the Father. And there's never been a moment where the Son has not been the Son. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are eternal. And yet it is necessary that the Son come forth from the Father. So when Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father, what he is saying is he and the Father are one in being. So if we flip back to chapter number 1, and verse number 14. And the Word 
was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. So how can, how can a created being be full of the glory of the eternal God? Well, only if he is the, the divine being himself. And that's what it says in verse number one, that he was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's also why it says, Hebrews 1, 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the son, to look upon the son is to look upon the glory of the Father. To look upon the Son is to look upon the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. To look upon the Son is to uh, look upon um, the invisible God, is to look upon the Father. He is the image of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And so the only way you could be the express image of divinity is to be divine yourself. You can't be the express image, the glory of the Father, unless you are equal with him. And so unless Jesus is God, he couldn't be the express image of God. That's what he's saying here. To, to look upon me is to look upon the Father. He's saying, I and my Father are one. In being... The eternal Son is truly God just as the Father is truly God. It is evident that Jesus Christ is shown to be the Son of God in Scripture. It's also evident that he is shown to be the Son of God prior to and irrespective of his, his work as mediator. Now, I heard somebody preach, a Baptist preach, that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that was his second birth. Now, that, that's, that's heretical. He, he's saying this, that was the second time Jesus came into existence. Well, that's not what that means when it says that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. It's not that Jesus was born in heaven one time, and then he's born in the earth the second time. He is called the only begotten because he is the Son of God. Not because he was brought into existence. He has spoken of the Son of God in the pre-incarnation standpoint. So like we read there in John 1, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. So the Word had existence prior to being made flesh. The Word, the Son of God, was the Son of God in eternity past. He was always the Son. Jesus didn't become the Son when he was born of a virgin. He was always the son. He was the son in Genesis 1.1. He was the son in eternity past.
So how is he the only begotten of the Father? Well, Jesus, who is one with God, the Father, did not have a beginning. I mean, this, is, this sounds pretty uh, simple, but how can you have a father without a son? And how can you be a son without a father? So, the father was always the father. And the son was always the son. Because they always, they, they have, there's never been a moment where the father wasn't or the son wasn't. Jesus, who is one with the father, did not have a beginning. So that's that ontological trinity that I was talking about. The being of God. The eternal God, the one being of God in three persons. Not shared among three persons, but, but, but each person of, of the trinity being truly God. And so the son did not have a beginning. He couldn't have a beginning. Any, any more than the father could have a beginning or the spirit could have a beginning. The father didn't choose to to have the son, so to speak. But it was a necessary act of the father. And so he shares in the eternity of the father. All right, so we're we're almost done with this deep end of the the pool part. But just get this clear um, about this, this one point. And I'm going to quote um, Lewis Burkhoff from his Systematic Theology. It says, It does not mean that this was an act complete in the far distant past, but rather it is a timeless act. The act of the eternal present, an act always continuing, yet ever always complete. Its eternity follows not only from eternity of God, but also from divine immutability. Or not only... Let's think about it this way. So it's not only that God is eternal, but also that God doesn't change. And so if, if in the beginning there was just the Father, and then the Son came later on, then that's a change. Then God is not unchangeable. Then he, God has changed. God is different now than he once was. So, this generation of the personal being of God is eternal. So, it's the eternal essence of the Son. It may be said, then, that the eternal and necessary act of the first being the Trinity, that he within the divine being is the ground of the second personal substance of his own. So, we might say that from all eternity, The Father communicates the one simple, undivided essence to the Son. About 1,500 years ago, this was written and it's been believed and and taught and repeated ever since. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time. The Son was equal to the Father in divine glory without subordination. John Gill says without this eternal generation, there can be no proof made of the distinctive being in the person of the Godhead. 
So you might think about it this way. There is no when to eternal generation. So if somebody says, well, when was Jesus begotten? Know that that's a wrong question. There is no when to, to the begottenness of the Son. Because Jesus is of the Father of eternal generation. There is no beginning to this generation. It's hard for us to think about that because we live in time where human beings and we think that preceding, one proceeding from the other has to have a beginning to it. But the scriptures are very clear that in the essence of God, Jesus, truly God, cannot have a beginning. And the Father cannot have a beginning. And so the, the, the Son proceeding from the Father it is an eternal generation. So, when Jesus says in John chapter 12, He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. This is what he is pointing to. That Jesus was no ordinary man like any other man standing there. That the word was made flesh and dwelt among them. That in being, he is the Son of God made flesh, the eternal Son, the God-man standing before them, the express image of the divine Father. And so when you look upon Christ, you look upon, um, look upon the Father. You, you hear him, you see the Father. You, you come to Christ, you are coming to the Father. They are one. John Owen said, whoever denies Christ as a son, as a son, that is the eternal son of God, he loses the father and the true God. He hath not God. For that God, which is not the father and which ever was and was not the father is not the true God. So if you deny the eternal sonship of Christ, you would deny the eternal fatherhood of God. You cannot have you cannot have one without the other. So they could not have Jesus just to come and deliver them from the Romans and say, "Yeah, we want you to be our king, but that that uh, believing on you stuff and that manna from heaven stuff, that light of the world stuff. I don't know about that, but sure, feed us and heal us. We'll we'll take that. No, you, you can't do that." Or you can't say, well, I love God, but, but I don't love Jesus. You can't say that either. To deny the, the deity of Christ, to deny, to deny the deity of Christ is to, to be in darkness, to have no God at all. So, with that in mind, Jesus says in verse 46, I am coming a light into the world. Whosoever believeth on me should not should abide in darkness. Should not abide in darkness. When the Son of God entered into creation, it was like the sun rising in the darkness. Jesus is the light. He is the light. I was trying to think of what time the sun rises uh, you know I'm up before the sun rises and then um, 
I go to work and then, you know, it's already light and I, I couldn't really remember exactly what time the sun rises. So I, I decided I'd pay attention, closer attention this morning to see what time the sun came up and, and there's the darkness everywhere. Then all of a sudden over the, the, over the hills, the sun, you see the, the, the light start to arise. And then when the sun comes up, the darkness flees. Well, Jesus came into a dark world. Like it's dark outside right now. Darkness. Like in the Egyptian darkness. Darkness that you could almost, that darkness that you could touch and feel. That's the way the world is. In darkness. Jesus said, whoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. What's that mean? That means that there is darkness to start with, that's the default position. We are born in darkness. We abide in darkness. And without Christ, we remain in darkness. That is the problem with the world. It's not political problems. It's not problems with that, that the right president could solve. It's not problems that the right educational program can solve. It's not problems that money can solve. It's not an, it's not an intelligence problem. That's what people say that they just didn't know any better. That's why they do bad things. They just don't know any better. If we could teach them, then they'd know better than they wouldn't do those things. Well, that's not true. Our problem is not an intelligence problem. It's a light problem. We, we abide in darkness. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And left alone, we were to remain in darkness. The people that saw Jesus, they were abiding in darkness. They heard him, but they didn't hear him. They saw him, but they didn't see him. And we can go and, and talk to people about their need for the Lord and tell them that except they repent, they will die in their sins. And what do they say? Nothing. They, they don't believe. They don't, they, don't, they, they don't take us seriously. They think we're crazy. Why? Because they abide in darkness. The, the truth of God's word is before them. And yet they cannot see because of their, their nature in darkness. Well, how are you delivered from this darkness? Whosoever believeth on me, faith alone in Christ alone. That's how you're delivered from the darkness. Not by working hard, not by shining a light upon yourself, not by shining a light upon others, not by education, not by getting a, a different job, not by moving to a different part of the country, by faith in Christ alone. The only way you can be delivered from the darkness is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by looking to the light. The only way to be, to be caught up from that dark Egyptian night is to look upon the light. The light of the world has come. And whosoever believeth in him and whoever turns to the light, whoever receives the light, 
will no longer abide in darkness. If you believe in Christ, now you abide in Christ. If you believe in Christ, you're now in the light. You've been delivered. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness and now abide in the kingdom of light. How? By faith. By looking to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. By turning your eyes upon him and forsaking your self-righteousness and forsaking your works and forsaking your hope of any other way within yourself, but looking only to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, and faith alone, by the grace of God, you are delivered from darkness into the light. Well, Jesus says, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. So if you hear his words, and you don't believe, if you hear this gospel, and you don't believe, well, Jesus didn't come to judge, but to save the world. So what does that mean? Well, you abide in darkness. You remain in darkness. There are people who hear and don't believe. Does a bolt of lightning fall from heaven and and strike you dead? No. Does everything in your life start turning bad and, and your life become more difficult than it was? Usually not. Your life just keeps on going the way that it it was prior. What does that tell you? That tells you that you abide in darkness and you'll continue in darkness. Because Christ didn't come here to judge the world. But what he's saying is, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already judged. The wrath of God already abides upon you. You are already in darkness walking in darkness and living in darkness and having your being in darkness. The judgment is already scheduled. Because in verse 48, it says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The judgment is coming. The rejection of Jesus is the rejection of the Father. And one of these days, you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he that receiveth not his words will stand before the Lord God at the last day and will be judged by this very word. Oh, but I didn't know. You didn't hear my word in John chapter 12. But no one told me. You didn't hear the message preached on that Wednesday night? No, you heard and you did not believe. You heard and you received not. You heard and you rejected. That's what Jesus is saying here. 
We are born in darkness. We are born in our sins. We are born with the wrath of God abiding upon us. We are born walking according to the course of this world on the broad way that leads to destruction. And there upon the broad way, the, the light is proclaimed to believe in the Son of God, to believe in the light that is in the world, to hear the words of God, to receive Him and be saved and be cleansed and be redeemed and be rescued. Look to Christ and you will see the express image of God. Look to Christ and be saved. To those that hear not, remain in their sins. Remain under the curse. Remain in darkness. It's not that we're born good and then we have to make those choices through our life, good or evil, and, and it's up in the air. And Will we have more good than evil? That's not what Jesus says here. You, you can't get that idea from what Jesus says. It's not that we're born good, we're born neutral, and as long as we do more good than evil, then we'll end up on the right side. No, Jesus says that we're born in darkness and we abide in darkness and we remain in darkness. That all the best good that we can do is in darkness. If you go outside and right, right now and you say, oh, I'm going to do all these good works, you're doing it in darkness no matter what you do. There's people out there right now that no doubt are, are getting ready to steal something out in the darkness. There's people out Right now, no doubt, getting ready to, to drink and to do drugs and do all sorts of illegal activity because they love darkness. They love hiding. But you could go out and do good. You could go out and give money to the poor and all these sorts of things. But you'd still be in darkness. And, and so that's the, that, that's the point here. That if you are in darkness, you're lost. And it doesn't matter if you do the worst evil that you can or you do the best, that you can, the best good that you can. If you're in the darkness, the wrath of God abides upon you. So whether people are stealing or giving to the poor, they abide in darkness. It has nothing to do with more good than evil. It has everything to do with the original sin, being born depraved, and then being rescued and delivered out of that that uh, state of condemnation. For if you've broken one law, you've broken them all, and, and, and you are guilty. You are guilty in Adam, you are guilty in your own sins, and the wrath of God abideth upon you. And Jesus says, if you reject me, if you don't listen to my word, if you don't look to the light, then you're just going to stay in darkness. You're going to stay in your sins. You're going to stay in guilt. And you're going to live the rest of your life in darkness. And then you're going to die in darkness. And you'll stand before God and you'll be judged by this word. Then you'll be cast into outer darkness. You'll be judged on that last day. Now, let me try to tie these two things together. Why did I talk so much about the ontological trinity and the economical trinity and the eternal generation of the Son and all those things. You say, well, what, do, what does that have to do with, with what you just said? Well, in verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of myself, but of the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandments is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, 
Even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Since Christ has come of the Father, his words are not of human origin. Christ's doctrine is a heavenly doctrine. His words are eternal, inerrant truths. What Jesus speaks, you can't just take it or leave it. In other words, you must reckon with what Jesus says. Every person on earth, this concerns every person on earth, what Jesus just said. Not just church people, and not just Americans, and not just English-speaking people, and not just people who were born into Christian families, but every person, every Russian, every Ukrainian, every person in China, every person in South America, black or white or rich or poor, it does not matter. Every person must reckon with these words. That Jesus Christ came into this world with a word from God, a commandment from God. And ignoring or not believing in what Jesus says doesn't mean that you're indifferent. It doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you. It affects you one way or the other. Everybody. You, you can't say, well, this doesn't pertain to me. It pertains to every person. It doesn't matter if you listen or you ignore or you don't believe. It doesn't matter. It pertains to you. Ignoring or not believing is abiding in darkness. The eternal Son comes to speak the words of the eternal Father. And this commandment is of eternal life. This commandment's not a law, but it's the gospel. It's not something that you do, it's something that Christ has done. So now this is where we tie all this up together. The covenant of redemption is where the Father gave the Son as the redeemer of his people. And the son voluntarily took the place of those who the father had given him. So remember I said that that the son proceeded forth from the father eternally, that there was no beginning to the father, no beginning to the son, but through eternal generation he he proceeds forth uh, from the father. Well, much in the same way is how we see the Holy Trinity in relation to our salvation. For the Father had chosen a people of this sinful creation to whom he would to whom he would save. And the Father has sent the Son as the Son has voluntarily taken the place of those whom the Father had given him. So, in the ages of eternity past, the Father and the Spirit, Son and the Spirit, in this covenant of redemption, ordained that they would save their people from their sins. The Father chose a people in love, and the Son volunteered to come to be their Redeemer, and the Spirit 
to come and apply that redemption. Kevin DeYoung says, We know that the elect were chosen, but not out of thin air, but in Christ before the foundation of the world. We know that the promises were made to Christ that he would be given to people by the Father. We know that Christ, the second Adam, is in covenant head with his people. We know from Psalm 2 that there was a decree where the eternally begotten Son was given the nations for his inheritance. The Son was granted by an eternal arrangement a people to save and redeem. This is the covenant of grace, where in time it is made possible the covenant of redemption from all eternity. So Christ came speaking this eternal, speaking of this eternal covenant of redemption. That the, the redemption was made in eternity, the, the covenant was made in eternity past, and it was pictured in types and shadows in the Old Testament. And now the eternal Son, who, who in eternity with the Father covenanted that he would save the people the Father had gave him, had, had come into this world being sent from the Father, proceeding forth from the Father in the flesh, saying, I have come uh, to do as I, I have um, willed to do. I have come in my, in my role, so to speak, as the, the Son of God. To die for sinners. So Christ came speaking this covenant of redemption. The gospel, the command of the Father. Not that God is making it up as he goes along, not that this was some new thing, but this is looking upon the eternal Father in the person of, in the face of Christ, looking upon the Redeemer in the face of Christ, looking uh, upon Christ and knowing that he has come to fulfill that eternal covenant that was shadowed and typed throughout the Old Testament and, and promised aforetime by the, the word of God. The eternal Son, speaking the words of the eternal Father, proclaiming the eternal covenant that whosoever would believe upon him would have eternal life. And you here tonight who put your faith and trust in Christ will receive the life promised in Christ, the life secured by Christ, and abide not in darkness but in the everlasting life. I'm not calling you to put your trust in some theory that I cooked up. I'm not calling you to put your trust in me or to put your trust in this church or the waters of baptism. I'm calling you to put your trust in the eternal Son of God. And not not some newfangled theory, but but the words that was given to Jesus by the Father who sent him. The words of the everlasting covenant. That whosoever would look upon the Son by faith and trusting in his finished work of redemption would no longer abide in darkness, but have everlasting life. And if you have trusted in that word, in that command, in that gospel, then you can be secure tonight. You can rest your head easy tonight in Christ. Because as surely as the, the, <clears throat> the promise was made in eternity, and as surely as the Son came to proclaim this, He accomplished it, and it is is as secure as um, is as secure as the name of God is. He he could swear by nothing greater. Nothing could break us from this everlasting eternal covenant. If you are in Christ, you are safe tonight. You are secure in Him.
Rest in him. Rest in these gospel promises. Know that your salvation is sure in Christ. Look not to yourself for assurance, but look to the blessed Lord. Pray that God will give you gospel comfort and assurance tonight. Looking to Christ as your only hope of salvation.